Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, February the 24th, 2024. It is currently 5.02 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Sometimes you come up with this big plan. It's this elaborate plan, and you've got all of these details, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're excited about the plan, and you're like, this is going to be perfect, and then life happens, right? See, you make your plans, and then when life happens, well, your plans usually get, well, then all messed up, and I feel in a way that's kind of happened. It never was intentional, but it kind of happened. I I decided that we would spend basically all of 2024 using the Sermons 2.0 app and what we are calling the Sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge. And the goal was each day. Now, and and I guess in some ways, even though it's disrupted me, it didn't have to disrupt you. So I'm hoping you're still participating. The goal was each day you would wake up and you would grab your phone, your tablet, you would open up the Sermons 2.0 app, you may hit the discovery tab, and you just choose a sermon as random as possible. You try not to look at the name, you try to not look at the, the church or the denomination, and you just choose and you hit play. You listen to the sermon in a notebook, you write down the name of the sermon, you write uh, maybe the date, you write you know the name of the church, etc., you listen to the sermon and then you write like a one sentence summary. Now in your notebook, you could also, you know, take notes on the sermon if you had the opportunity and then you could put the page number for the notes right there in your list. And then the goal was by the end of 2024, you would have one sermon for every single day of 2024 listed. That was the goal. Now, I was doing a lot of recording and doing sermon reviews and trying to encourage that participation, right? And then we kind of, as a part of the Sermons 2.0 app challenge, remember we were going to do 21 days in the Minor Prophets and you're supposed to be using the Sermons 2.0 app to find random sermons on the Minor Prophets. You could just have gone in order. You could have started with uh, Hosea, then you could have went to Joel, then you could have went to Amos and you could just one sermon for each one. And after you went through all 12, you could start over. I, you, there was lots of different things, but trying to make them as random as possible. And I was, I I did, you know, a couple of messages where we talked about the minor prophets and, and, you know, reviewed some sermons. And, and I, again, I was trying my best to keep you engaged. Now, the good thing is when you put out a challenge like that, even if you get distracted or get interrupted, at least you've already handed everyone something that they could do and they could be benefiting from it. Even if things got all messed up for, for me, well, for me, (laughs) 2024, even though it was going to be, you know, the year of the Sermons 2.0 app challenge and, and the year for the lectionary and the liturgi- uh, the historical liturgical calendar and all the different things we were doing, even though I had all these big plans, oh, they were so big and I had them all mapped out. Well, many of you know, everything has kind of been disrupted for me, right? 
now I got I to try to figure out what the future is of Victory Baptist Church and how we're going to handle the financial issues where we have more money going out than we have coming in. How is that going to mean for the church? How is that going to impact the podcast? Okay, how do I, how do I, you know, how do I get support for the podcast? And all of these just like unanswerable questions and I don't have any answers. And guess what happens sometimes? When you find yourself in a situation where you don't have answers— Your circumstances seem all just discombobulated and confusing and and you're you're just filled with confusion and conflict and and maybe a little worry and anxiety, even though I know as Christians we're not supposed to do that, but having a little bit of that and just concern and maybe discouragement and maybe depression and all the different emotions I have been feeling over the last couple of weeks, it's just been difficult. Well, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm just going to be absolutely honest with you. I, I have not been participating in the Sermons 2.0 app challenge. Now, if you think about it from a spiritual perspective, that's a bad decision. Because when everything is confusing and everything is, you know, discombobulated and you're filled with worry and anxiety, what's the best thing to do? Well, the best thing to do is to be listening to sermons because now you're getting your focus on that, which is spiritual. You're getting your focus on the word of God. You're getting your focus on theology, doctrine, God, Christ, the gospel. And you're not focused on your problems and the uncertainties of the future because there's lots of uncertainties for me. How I'm going to do this and how I'm going to pay this. And I just, I have no answers. But you know what I did? I stopped listening to sermons so that I could do what? spend all of this time being preoccupied and focused on all of these other things. And you know what would have been much better? Spending, I don't know, every day of those 21 days focused on the minor prophets, focusing on the issues that they were dealing with and how God demonstrated his sovereignty and power and those circumstances. That would have been better, but I did not do, I'm just being honest, I did not do that. I've been, I've been walking around, you know, in circles, you know, walking around the house, talking to myself, going, okay, I, I could do this, or well, maybe I could do this, or maybe, maybe I just give up everything. Maybe that's it. That's the end of the church. That's the end of the podcast. I just, I just throw it all away and I start making these costs, uh, these cuts. And then maybe I go get a job and maybe I'm just done with all, maybe, and it, oh, well, no, I don't really want that to be that way. Well, maybe what I want doesn't matter. And I just have these conversations with myself. You know what would have been better? Man, today I heard a sermon in the book of Amos, and I got my focus on that. So I'm going to walk around the house today meditating on Amos chapter 1, or or the overview, or the book background to the book of Amos, or maybe I do a word study, or maybe I do a, a thematic study, or a topical study, or a chapter summary study, or a chapter analysis, or do one of the Bible study methods. See, that would that not have been better spiritually? See, sometimes it's so easy to know what you should do. Because so many times those things are very theoretical. Well, I should do this and I should do this. We all know that. But then when a circumstance, you know, it's like, you know, you can have a great, it's sometimes it's said in boxing. You can have great strategy. You can have great plan, but that goes out the window the minute you get punched in the face. Well, the same thing, same thing happens theologically. You can have all these great theological ideas and these great theological plans and strategies and how to live life and these great theological concepts and how to handle anxiety and worry and depression and discouragement. And you've got them all in your notebook and you passed a couple of courses in seminary about it and, and you, you, you know it and you've got it all written down because of your Bible studies. And then you're like, great. And then life is like, boom, you know, an elbow to the side of the head. And then you're kind of like, uh, worry, anxiety. I don't care about sermons. I don't care about my Bible. 
I don't care about anything. I just care about fixing this problem because I need certainty and I need answers because if I have certainty and I have answers or I need to, I need freedom. I need to extract myself from all of this and just say, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm moving forward. I'm never looking back because I'm tired of being in the middle of it. That, yeah, that's, that's what I have done. So I gave you a very good challenge for 2024. One sermon per day. So you can meditate and focus on it. So that you could, that when no matter what uncertainty you were facing, you would have one specific thing to focus on. I handed that to you. In a sense, I handed that to me. And guess what I did? <laughs> I forgot it as soon as I got punched in the face. Oh, come on. I can't be the only one who did that. We, we, we all do this to some level, right? Theological concepts, theological ideas sometimes are so theoretical and it's hard to get them from the theoretical to the practical. Very difficult because once we, once the practical happens, then we are confronted with some realities that we do know theologically, right? We do know that we're human beings with a sinful nature. The sinful nature does not always respond to circumstances in a theological way. It responds to circumstances in a fleshly way. We're also human beings made up with emotions and thinking and feel and all of the, and those things again are greatly influenced by the sinful nature, which then gets us to respond in a way that's not spiritual or theological, but fleshly. That is always the issue. So as I'm still trying to navigate all of that, tomorrow could be a big day and getting some kind of idea where things are going. In the meantime, I'm looking here going, man, see, I don't need, I've lost count. What day are we on in our 21 day, our, our 21 days of the minor prophets? I don't even know what day we're on anymore. I've lost track. I'm like, well, you know what? I can't figure, I'm not going to go back and try to figure it out. I can't make up for everything, but I've got time on this Saturday afternoon going into a Saturday early evening you know what? I'm going to grab a message and I'm going to grab one from the minor prophets. I'm going to make it as random as possible. And we're just going to, we're going to spend a little time. So let's do this. I have picked a random sermon and random, 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 but I'll be honest. I did not follow the rules. Well, I guess I kind of followed the rules, but not completely. I'll explain why. So I looked up, I'm like, okay, well, we did a little bit of work in Hosea. Okay. Um, let's, let's do one in Amos. Let's do one in Amos. So I typed in Amos and I did search. And then the first thing that popped up when I typed in Amos, the very first thing was a message called America Revival or Ruin. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Immediately, I sighed. I was like, why? How in the world can a sermon based on the book of Amos have anything to do with the United States of America? I'm like, that makes me very, very, very concerned because a lot of times people take things from the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, and they immediately grab it, throw, rip it out of its context and apply it to us. And in many cases, like, I don't know if there's even an application to us unless you're just trying to take a basic concept. But in many cases, people, I think, do great damage to the text because it'll be about Judah. It'll be about Babylon. It'll be about Israel. It's not about the United States of America. Now, what you can do is say, as Israel did this, we do this. Now, you can't then draw a direct parallel that God's going to respond in the same way because God made a covenant with Israel. He has not made a covenant with the United States of America, no matter how much Christians love to pretend that he did. Scripture says he made a covenant with the nation of Israel, not with the United States of America. And if you're going to do that, then I guess you're relying on some kind of extra biblical revelation, but you're not getting it from the Bible. He did not. 
He made it with the nation of Israel. Now, some people want to say that that was not made with the nation of Israel. It was made with the spiritual Israel, which is the church. I know we could get into those theological arguments. That's still not the United States of America. So I'm already like, I was like, no, 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 no. So I, so I, I know I was supposed to just choose random, but then I was like, you know what? I'm, 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 I, I can't do that one. I can't do that one because I know it's going to be one a, a great source of frustration. But then, so I got ready to click off of it, right? America revival or ruin, and then I noticed it has over twenty thousand downloads and streams, and I was like, oh wow, okay, I have to stop. Over twenty thousand. It looks like the date of this was uh, J- July the twenty fifth, twenty twelve. I'm assuming that's when it was posted. Um, I don't know. Uh, I could be wrong, but that maybe that's the date it was preached. So I don't know exactly. But I was like, wow, 20,000? Those are some big numbers. Uh, not only was it 20,000, it was a staff pick from the, the Sermon Audio staff. And I'm like, wait a minute, 20,000? The staff think it was thinks it was so good that they picked it. I'm like, all right. And it's supposedly on Amos chapter 3. I'm like, okay, so Amos chapter 3. So I got my Bible open up to Amos chapter 3, all right? And just my chapter heading in my my Bible says, Jehovah's controversy with the whole family of Jacob. So I don't know how the United States of America is going to show up in this, but I'm very curious. I don't want it to be a negative thing. Now, remember, when I do sermon reviews, I don't listen to them first. So this is basically me saying, okay, I've not been doing the Sermons 2.0 app, the Sermons 2.0 app challenge. So guess what? This is my attempt to get back into it. So I've chosen a random sermon and we're going to listen to it together. And I will be making comments, analysis, critique, and then... It'll take whatever was originally preached and it'll be transformed and hopefully whatever this is. So hopefully it will be beneficial and we will see. It's got to be beneficial for me, right? Because I can sit here and I could spend all of this evening and tonight and throughout the early morning hours going, man, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's, how's it going to go tomorrow? I don't know how tomorrow's going to, tomorrow could be a big day. It could go, maybe, maybe, maybe something positive happens and then I don't even have to worry about anything or it could go so negative that I got to start worrying about it immediately. I see, I'm, I, I have, I don't know. I have no idea. I have no way of knowing. Now I can focus on that uncertainty or what I can do is forget about that uncertainty and focus on, well, the preaching of God's word. And even if I disagree with it, Guess what I'm doing? I'm forgetting about my uncertainty, and I'm going to try to establish what is certain about Amos chapter 3. So let's do this. Let's see what happens. Uh, It's not that long. It's only 28 minutes. So that's one of the reasons I'm making a longer introduction, because I want to make sure you get your money's worth, right? Because you pay so much. Okay, I never. All right, here we go. Let's jump in right now. Bible's open. Amos chapter 3. Notebook's open. And of course, you know, the official writing tool for the Theology Central podcast is a number two pencil, right? Everyone understands that. The official writing tool for the Theology Central podcast is a number two pencil. Any other writing device that you're utilizing, if it's not a number two pencil, you are in violation and it's probably a crime against some some law somewhere. Okay, well, here we go. Are you ready? 
Let's do this. We begin right now. When I was a little boy in the 1950s, things were different in America back then. I remember this country when Hollywood had censors, politicians had a conscience, and America had a moral compass. Hemlines were lower, and morals were higher, and sin was called sin and not social disorders. Of course, we didn't have the technology that we have today. Back then, if you said Microsoft, they thought you were referring to your mattress. And we didn't have Wi-Fi, we had Hi-Fi. It was a time when only women wore earrings, and only sailors had tattoos. I remember America when it still had a strong work ethic, and business abounded in honesty and integrity, and a man's word and handshake was as good as gold. And I remember in America when a parent did not have to worry about what their children saw on TV, and marriage was between a man and a woman. There was such a thing as shame in society back then. Okay, so we're going to start off with how great America was in the 1950s. Was it great for everyone in the 1950s? Was it? I'm just, I'm just curious. Was it great for everyone in the 1950s? Maybe if, you, if your skin wasn't white, I wonder how great it was in the 1950s. I wonder how great it was in the 1950s if your skin wasn't white. I wonder if you were denied certain rights. But you see, we always have a tendency to look back and go, in the, back in the good old days, there was morality and there was godliness and there was all of these things. Well, maybe there was morality. Maybe there was an external sense of morality. But did that change the fact that people still had, I don't know, a sinful nature? Because I can go back to a time before the 1950s. I can go back to a time, hmm, let me see. Oh, there was uh, two brothers. I think one name was Cain and the other was Abel. And oh, that ended in murder. Oh, I can go to a, I can, I can, I can go to a time way, way back where all the thoughts of men was on wickedness continually and God, I don't know, drowned the entire population. I can go back to a time where there's a man by the name of Lot who lived in a, a city that sounded pretty corrupt. And that was before the 1950s. I also know that if I go back to the 1950s, I can find sermons and people yelling and screaming about the decadence that was coming in. Because remember, the 1950s is going to give us the birth of rock and roll. And we're going to get Elvis Presley. And we're going to get, oh my goodness, the world is coming to an end. And the morality of this. And I remember that there's a lot of people. Go find some sermons from that period of time. Look up some some clips from the 1950s where they were decrying and radio DJs were breaking records on the air because we're not going to play this stuff. And and all, and oh, you had lots of uh, issues. Now, I understand you can pinpoint some external righteousness and go, the external righteousness was better. But does external righteousness mean that, you know, I don't know. What does that prove? So this is a strange way to begin because this is about the Amos chapter three. But okay, I just, I always get a little, it always bothers me a little bit when people pick a time, go back in the good old days. And sometimes you go back to the good old days and I don't know how good they were. I think there was still, look, I, this is what I know, whether it's 1900, 1910, I don't care if it's the 1600s, the 1700s, guess what you can find? Horrible things happening, horrible thing, sin abounding. 
People can go like, man, if we could go back to the 1940s. Oh, I don't know when the world was at war and Hitler was exterminating six million Jews. Yeah, what a great time. How about we can we can talk about how about the Vietnam era or the Korean War era? I mean, we can go I can go on and on and on. We can pick whichever era that you think was so much better. And I guarantee you I can find all kinds of things. You said, well, overall, overall what? There was a sense of external morality and people were hiding their immorality. And maybe that makes you feel better. But it doesn't change the fact that people were sinners. Here's what I know. People were sinners. In fact, in some cases, when the external morality is higher, there's a high, when, in other words, when society embraces an external morality, you know what you get? You get a lot of Pharisaical and Sadducees type mentality where people say, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like these other people. And they trust in their own righteousness and they don't think they need Jesus because look at how moral they are. You could argue that from a salvific perspective, from a soteriological perspective, the more righteous, the more external righteousness within society, the more likely they will trust in their own external righteousness and not think that they need the imputed righteousness of Christ. You could argue that it's actually a bad thing from a salvific perspective. But okay, all right. So so he remembers a time. Everything was so wonderful in America. Everything was great in America. All right. Somehow we're going to get to Amos. All right. Let's see how we get there. I remember America when the church still had authority and there was still a fear of God in the land. I remember a nation that stood on biblical principles and looked to God for guidance and to the church for direction. It was okay to pray in public school back then and the Ten Commandments were publicly displayed and if any atheist cried out against it, there were more than enough Christians to shout that person down because God held the majority in the nation back then. Oh, man. Oh, man. So so this is almost a, a cry that we want to go back to where Christians tell everyone what to do. And if someone doesn't like it, we shout them down because you're going to do it our way. You're going to do it our way. This is a Christian nation because we say it's a Christian nation and you're going to live like a Christian and you're going to have to deal with it. Oh, see, Christians don't like it when someone flips the switch, flips the script, do they? When someone's like, oh, 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 so you were in charge and you got to tell us what to do and you got, well, guess what? Now we're taking over and we're going to remove the Ten Commandments and we're going to remove prayer or maybe we'll put in, instead of the Ten Commandments, we'll put maybe the nine statements of, uh, of, uh, from the Satanic Bible. I got them right here. Maybe they say, you know what we want published in the, so we're going to have the nine satanic statements that are found on page 25 of the satanic Bible. We're going to post those. Oh, Christians will be like, how dare you? How dare you? And, and, and instead of prayer, we're going to have uh, Islamic prayer in the public school. No, 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 no. Well, wait a minute. If you want to somehow impose religious things in these certain public situations, well, then other religions can say they want the same. Then you don't want people to have the freedom of religion. So the, it, I, I can't, I, it just so drives me crazy when Christians are like, well, that's what we want to get back to. We, why? Why do you want to impose religiosity or a form of Christianity upon unregenerate people? If you want to pray, you can pray on the way to school. You can pray in your mind all day at school. Churches can open their doors and kids can stop on the way to school and pray. You can pray. The churches can be open Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. The churches can pray around the clock. 
But no, no, you want the public school to do it. Why? Go to church and do it. You want the Ten Commandments posted? Post them in your church. Post them in your house. Why do you want the public school to do the church's job? It's a public school. It's not a church. But we look back and going, what a great time. What a great time. <laughs> oh, I saw, oh, it, that drives, it drives me absolutely crazy. All right, but let's, let's we'll see where this goes. I just want to get to Amos. And I remember in America that was looked up to by other nations. And we were a country that held on to the principles of our founding fathers. And old glory was never stomped on and set fire to because we respected too much what it stood for. Back then, there was such a thing as a weekly prayer meeting in the church and people actually came to pray. And they weren't embarrassed to cry when they prayed and they prayed loud and long and did so until they grabbed hold of God and the fire fell and consumed the sacrifice. The church back then didn't operate on money and manpower, but by God and Holy Ghost power. Back then, the church influenced society instead of society influencing the church. And I remember preachers who preached about the blood and the cross, and they warned that hell was hot and a future judgment awaited all mankind. Those kind of preachers weren't afraid of men, but they sure feared the Almighty. I keep using the reward, remember... Because all I have is my memory of these former things. Today, America is facing ruin and only a heaven-sent revival will save this nation from complete destruction. You see, Christianity was always meant to be counter-cultural. In the New Testament, when the church meant the world, there was a clash. Christianity was supposed to be counter-cultural. You just spent the entire beginning trying to claim that it was cultural. So was it cultural or was it countercultural? If it was always meant to be countercultural, then why do you try to make it the culture? I don't want a cultural Christianity. See, there's so many Christians who want to make a cultural Christianity. I don't want a cultural Christianity that's imposed on the culture. I want Christians living out their Christianity. I want the church to live out its Christianity. Now, does that become, it'll become cultural if the culture is truly saved. But then, then I don't want to impose it on the non-Christians. Right? I, 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 so it's countercultural, but, but there was a time it was cultural. If it was cultural, was it, are you sure that it was really Christianity or was it outward religion? But okay, okay. I, I still want to get to Amos 3, right? Because that's supposedly the text for this. So we're going to see. All right, we're going to see. Because the church went in one direction and pagan society went in the other. Now they travel side by side and there's just a rub between them. We wanted to reach the world, so we brought the world into the church. Where has it gotten us? It has only corrupted the house of God. When the people of God begin to drift away from the heart of God, then God will send remedial judgments to call his people back to him. My message today is entitled, America, Revival or Room? It's about the remedial judgments of God, and we will begin in the book of Amos, Amos chapter 3 and 4. Amos was a fiery prophet of God whose main message was judgment. God's timetable was up, and the people of God would not return to him, so he sent a series of judgments upon them, remedial judgments, 
and each one was stronger and harsher than the previous one. All right, hermeneutics class time, people. All right, it's time for hermeneutics. Hermeneutics 101. If we read of remedial judgments in the Old Testament, and in this particular case, Amos was a Jew, but but prophesying uh, in the northern kingdom, right? Exercised his ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II, an able but idolatrous king who brought his kingdom to the to the zenith of its power. Nothing could seem more improbable than the fulfillment of Amos' warnings, yet within 50 years, the kingdom was utterly destroyed. The vision of Amos is, however, wider than the northern kingdom, including the whole house of Jacob. All right, then they go, and then that's a little bit of just an introduction to the book of Amos. So here's, here's the hermeneutical question for the day. If we read of so-called remedial judgments, Given to the minor prophets, where, hey, hey, Israel, this is a judgment trying to wake you up, repent. Here's a judgment, try, here, try, you know, wake up and repent. If you, if we read of these so-called remedial judgments where God brings them trying to wake up the house of Jacob, trying to wake up Israel, trying to wake up the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, trying to wake them up, does the presence of those judgments that God gave directly to Israel or to the north or to the south, are they prescriptive of how God works in any other nation? Or are they simply descriptive of what God did then? Do you take from that and say, well, God did remedial judgments then? Well, then God is doing remedial judgments in the United States of America. Now you're making it prescriptive. You're saying it prescribes how God will work in another situation. That's a hermeneutical question that I yet to hear someone sometimes spend much time on. There are things in the Bible that's simply descriptive. It's not telling you that's what God is going to do in any other situation. It's telling you what God did in that situation. Let me give you an example. What God did to Egypt to free his people clearly wasn't prescriptive. It was descriptive because we can't look for God to do that. Now, we could say it's prescriptive to what God says he will do in the book of Revelation, And you can draw a correlation and a parallel between those plagues. But I can't say that because God poured out these plagues on Egypt, that that's how he's going to work in in 1910, 1920, 1930, 1940, 1950, 1500s, 1600s, 1400s, 1300s, 1700s, 1800s, 1800s. No, it was a one-time thing. What God did to... You hear this all the time. People say, well... If God doesn't bring judgment to America, then he has to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why would you say such a ridiculous thing? No, he doesn't. God will judge when he wants to judge, and he will have mercy when he wants to have mercy. And what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah was in no way prescriptive for what he's going to do to any other nation, and it doesn't bound him or bind him to do so. Why would we act like that? Some things are simply descriptive. This is what God did. It does not tell me that's what God is going to do in every similar situation, unless he states that's the way he's going to act. That's, I, I don't know why we get so confused by that. People read Acts chapter 2 and what happened on the day of Pentecost and acts like that that's prescriptive. And if everyone will unite and pray, the Holy Spirit will fall and we'll get another day of Pentecost. No, the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that pointed to that. It, uh, when the day, uh, it, it makes it very clear that that was a fulfillment of something. It wasn't prescribing what was going to happen. It was a fulfillment of what had been described earlier. And then all you're getting in Acts 2 is a description of that fulfillment. It's not prescribing that this is the key and the way to move forward. Why do we do that? 
So even if there are remedial judgments, he's going to pull from Amos. What hermeneutical principle are you utilizing to say that that's how God is going to work in America? I, I, don't, I don't think that there's a hermeneutical principle that you're utilizing. I think you're, you're now, you've got to demonstrate how something is prescriptive. And I mean, I need language where God simply seems to imply, I did this once and I will do this forever. And, and again, he's dealing with the people he made a covenant with. If, if you were going to draw a parallel, God would bring, look, if you're going to draw a parallel, Israel was God's chosen people. The church is God's chosen people. So if you're going to draw a parallel, the remedial judgments given to Israel would parallel remedial judgments God brings upon the church, not upon the United States of America, if you wanted to draw some type of parallel. But, you know, let's, let's see where he takes this. God was trying to get their attention, but they refused to listen. Is God trying to get our attention today? Is America under the chastisement of the Almighty? Have we not turned our backs on God in this country today? Now see, is, is America under the chastisement of God? God chastises his children. He chastises his children, right? And if God doesn't chastise you, then you are what, according to the Bible? You're illegitimate. I think the King James uses a stronger word, Right? Come on, does ever, do you know where that passage is? Look that up. Don't take my word for it. Look in the book of Hebrews where it talks about God bringing chastisement. I guarantee you the chastisement is for God's people. Why would we say America is under the chastisement of God? Now you're implying that we, that America is God's nation. That is ridiculous. Israel was God's nation. He chose them. He is, was as if a father to them. They were his children. They were his nation. So he brought chastisement upon his people. So if you're going to say anything, God would bring chastisement upon the church, not the United States of America. You know, 9-11 was a wake-up call, but most everyone went back to sleep. God is still in his mercy trying to get our attention, but the timetable is quickly running out. This is the most critical time in the history of this nation because if things don't drastically change and there is a turning of this nation back to God, then there'll be no nation to turn. It'll be gone. Also, I just want to make sure that I make this very clear. I have heard that exact statement. If I go back, I can find sermons probably from the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s. I definitely heard these exact words in the 1980s. I heard these words in the 1990s. I heard these words in the 2000s. I heard these words in the 2010s. And I've already now I've heard these words in the 20, starting in 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, and 2024. This is a go-to for preachers. Hey, if we don't do this now, America will no longer exist. It will be destroyed. I have heard that over and over and over and over and over and over again. And in many cases, they look to Israel. Where, where does it say that the way God dealt with Israel is how he's going to deal with the United States of America? I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I don't like that in any way, 
shape, or form. And then, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. I'll just go ahead and read this to you because some of you won't look it up, all right? It says, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, wherefore all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. God chastises his children. So where do you get this idea is going to chastise the United States of America unless you're going to say America? What is it with Americans? We have some weird idea that America belongs to God. And that like, it almost like I think we like, hey, Israel, sorry, you're not the chosen nation. America's the chosen nation. It's America, 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 America. I don't know where, where we get that. There's nothing in scripture that would indicate that in any way, shape, or form. The nation God focuses on in the Bible is the nation of Israel. If you are one of those who believe that nation has been replaced, then it's the church. It's not the United States of America. Look at ancient Rome and their military might that ruled the world with an iron fist. Do you fear an Italian army today? No, it's laughable. America is not laughable in the eyes of the world. Well, look in your Bibles in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. What does it say? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can you walk with God and still hang on to your wretched sins? Can you name the name of Christ and live like the devil? If you want to walk with God, you must turn from your sins and pursue a life of holiness. God is holy. God's word declares without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. The problem with it. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That is law. Meaning you're going to have to have a holiness in order to see God. That is not your holiness, because if it's your holiness, then that means you have the ability to actually be holy. And to be holy means you have to be without sin. You will never be that. I've heard this preached in so many churches. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, so you better be holy or you're not a Christian. Well, then no one is a Christian because holiness is meaning separate, other than sin, meaning you don't sin. You say, no, no, it's not perfection. It's just you've got to have some holiness in your life. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's an absolute. Without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Guess what? I do have holiness. It's called the imputed holiness that comes from Christ by faith alone. If you think that practical holiness is going to be the reason you see God, then you're out of your mind because you either have to change holiness to mean something less than holiness. Holiness means perfection. It means without sin. It means you're perfect. It means you're righteous. But you're not. You sin all the time. So therefore, hmm. If I, if it's holiness is required for me to see God, how do I get it? How do I get it? The holiness God demands, the holiness God commands is the holiness that is provided to us by faith because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Imputed, not infused, imputed, not infused, imputed, not infused. But he just stated that almost in a practical way. And he, he just, can two walk together except we agree? You know how I can walk together with God and how I can be in perfect agreement with God? Because I'm in Christ Jesus positionally.
Now here may have practical implications to the nation of Israel, where God is looking at their practical aspects and judging that, which ultimately means that practically they never fulfilled what God called them to fulfill, which is why ultimately the Messiah needs to come, and that the only way for anyone to be ultimately saved and have a right relationship with God is in Christ Jesus. Israel here in Amos, they had quit walking with God. They preferred their sins over God. They turned their backside to God, yet they still believed they were all right in God's eyes, that God had somehow adjusted himself to their wicked ways, that he tolerated their sins because of his great love for them. God was angry with the Jews, and God is angry with the church member who claims to be a Christian and still hangs on to his sins. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? God may be angry at the church member who still holds on to his sins, and that is every single church member who has ever lived, is living, or will live, because we all have sin. And if you don't think you do, then you're delusional, because if you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You don't do it, you're in sin. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Be holy as God is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are in sin. The end of story. So if my relationship with God is 1,000% dependent upon, if you're talking my salvific relationship with God is dependent upon my actions, then I'm going to hell. But my salvific relationship is based off an imputed righteousness, which is by faith apart from works. Now, if you want to talk fellowship with God, that can be hindered and hurt by my sin. But my positional standing with God is perfect. My practical, then we could talk about that. Can they? Picture in your mind the story of Elijah and his contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He was up against 450 prophets of Baal. Remember that? Elijah built an altar and challenged the prophets of Baal to call on their gods to consume the sacrifice, and their gods didn't show up. Finally, Elijah began to mock them and said that perhaps their god was on vacation. But listen to what Elijah said to the assembled crowd that day. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, if you want to walk with God, you can't have one foot with God and with the other play footsie with the world. Notice he said, if the Lord be God, is Jesus your Lord? Or is he just your insurance policy against hell? In Amos chapter 3 verse 6, the text reads, Sure there'll be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it. Another translation reads, Shall there be calamity in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Never in my lifetime has there been so many frequent natural disasters in this country, one right after another. Why do you think that is? Is it global warming or Mother Nature? Or is it God allowing Satan to wreak havoc on our society and on our land? In the book of Job, Satan brought a great wind to collapse the house of Job, and remove his family and his wealth. God gave Satan permission to do it. Satan's not on the same level as God. There is not an equal war between good and evil. Satan is only a created being, 
a judged created being whose time is short and he knows it. So bad weather is the work of Satan because God is allowing it to bring judgment. Now, I would have to go look when he says, there's never been this kind of calamity in, in, in my life. I would laugh. To, sometimes I hear people make these claims and you go back and look and go, well, in this year, we had a hurricane that killed, you know, 800 people. Or this year, there was a volcano that erupted. I mean, I, 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 there was an earthquake that, I mean, sometimes we got to be careful when we say that. Now, you could be saying the weather is getting worse, but he's arguing that that's Satan. Satan controls the weather. And so if you see bad weather, then that, that, that's judgment on God. So what happens when bad weather, bur, you know, burns down a church or, or, or floods a church? Is that, is that judgment? Is that just the church suffering the judgment that God is pouring out on the world? Like, I, I don't know exactly how that works, but, or no, is that Satan? Okay. So Satan, and you think if Satan is controlling the weather, he would just bring it upon, I don't know, churches and Christians, right? But I, I don't, I don't, or maybe Satan just wants to kill as many people. I don't know. I don't know exactly how you work this. I just, I didn't know Satan was the result of, was the cause of bad weather. I just, I didn't, I didn't realize this, but okay. All right. I guess, I guess if you could go that direction. In these last days, it'll be so terrible. You will not want to be alive if God does not send revival. Well, let's look at how God sends remedial judgments to a people who have turned their backs on him. Look at Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Judgment number one was that God sent a famine in the land. In his mercy he sent them a famine. But how did they respond? Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Well, look at judgment number two. It's more severe in verse seven. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the peace whereupon it rained not withered. See, you can go a week without food, but man cannot live long without water. God sends a drought to his disobedient people. Well, do they turn back to him and repent and seek his face? No. Yet have ye not returned to me. You see, back then the local Jewish weatherman told us here as it was just Mother Nature acting up again, a woman nature. They would just have to grin and bear it. They don't return to God. So he brings a even more severe judgment. Look at judgment number three in, in verse nine. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. God sent a financial collapse. Our economy is growing worse and worse, and a global depression is on the horizon. Now, wait a minute. This was preached in 2012. <laughs> it's 2024. Did, did, I, I must have missed that depression. I, did, you, did you suffer that depression? 
And we we just recently, I think the stock market broke some another record. Now, I'm not saying everything is always wonderful and great. There's always struggles and there's always difficulties. I, I, I think I have multiple books from Christian publishers. I don't know if it was 2012, but it was maybe 20, maybe 20, maybe it was 2012 that the Great Depression is coming and it's all going to be the end. Well, 2013 happened, then 2014, then 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 20, we even went through a global pandemic and, and all, but See, what he's doing, he's taking remedi- he's taking these judgments that occurred and somehow trying to make them prescriptive for what God should do, could do for us. You, this is what God did to them. It's descriptive. Have we turned back to God? God is trying to get our attention. Are we paying attention or are we asleep? And let me state this again, repetitive, but it needs to be stated from a hermeneutical perspective. If you're going to draw a parallel between what was going on in Amos, this was directed at his people, Israel. This was directed at God's chosen people. Well, then if you're going to draw a parallel, this would be judgment not coming upon the United States of America, but coming upon the church. These would be judgments that would come upon the church. I think he referred to them as remedial judgments, if I remember correctly, is the term, terminology he used. These would be judgments God would bring upon the church. These are judgments God would bring upon the church. If you're going to draw that parallel, not to America, but to the church. The remedial judgments of God, when unheeded, become the increasing judgments of God. Look at how severe judgment number four is. Look at verse 10. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. He has removed the young men of the city by death. You know, take the young men out of community and and your community has little future. God sends death to them, a, a pestilence and war. What is it going to take in America? What, what kind of terrible national calamity will have to fall upon this nation before it turns back to God? Will it ever turn back to God? When the Christian leaders refuse to acknowledge that God is judging America and judging the churches in America, then you have the blind leading the blind. Pastors of former generations were wiser and preach revival sermons to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Listen to a sermon preached by a leading pastor in Boston in 1755 when an earthquake shook that city. Listen to, listen to the title of his sermon, Earthquakes, the Work of God, and Tokens of His Just Displeasure. Now, we could also go back to Boston and that surrounding area in the 1600s and the 1700s. You know, they were killing people for supposedly being witches, even though they were innocent. I mean, you know, you know how I love Salem and you know I love that area of Salem. Boston, I mean, I go to Boston because where my daughter lives, but 
I, my, I, lo- I go immediately to Salem. I love Salem, Salem, Salem. But the first witch trials where they, people were being put to death occurred in Boston. And I think it's, the, it's called the Boston Commons. I think it's what it's called. It used to be a park and there was a big tree. That's there where they would hang people. So I don't know if we're going to go back to them. Like they were the godly ones. They were the, I don't know. They were kind of doing some absolutely insane things as well, you know? So. You know, what, what, what do I know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In that area, they, they banned a celebration of Christmas. Uh, we could go to a lot of things, but it's a funny how we always just go back and just remember the good things. No, no, we're sinners just like we are sinners. Okay. So, but again, if you're going to take these judgments and you're going to make a parallel, it'd be towards the church, 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 the church. And if you want America to return to God, then you need, what you need to do is how, when you say return to God, how do you want them to return to God? By imposing Christianity upon them through public policy or you get the church to live out their Christian life and evangelize and call people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the way it's done. So the focus should be on the church. be in a discourse on that subject wherein is given a particular description of this awful event of providence made public at this time on occasion of the late dreadful earthquake which happened on the 18th of November 1755. The text of the sermon was Psalm 18 verse 7. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken, because he was wroth. The leading pastors of New England all preached similar sermons at that time. They called their congregations to fast and pray and repent of their sins and fall on their faces before the God of terrible majesty. Even the President of the United States had a fear of God back then and called the entire nation to a time of humiliation before an offended Creator. Listen to this notice in a newspaper from 1798, a discourse delivered in the First Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia on Wednesday, May 9, 1798, recommended by the President of the United States to be observed as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer throughout the United States of America. How much more urgent It's the great need for America today. But we can't look to the White House to help us. We can't even look to the church house to help us. Who will take a stand for God in this land today? Who? It is time for the people of God to turn from their wicked ways and fast and pray and seek His holy face and repentance and humiliation. Or there will not be a nation left to pray in. When will the churches in this land stop playing church and get right with God and call a time of Solemn assembly where the people of God cry out to God in nights of desperation and prayer. Why complain about the direction of this nation when you're not willing to do anything about it? God says, return to me and I will return to you. Now, if he makes the direct, if if he's drawing the direct parallel to the church and telling the church to wake up, all right, then, then there, I, we, I got no issue with that. I mean, the church is the issue, not the country, the church. But don't take remedial judgments given against Israel and draw some parallel to the United States of America. 
No, if you're going to draw any parallel, it would be God bringing these judgments against the church, against the church. But let me make it very clear. That was 2012. I've heard this a million times. There's not going to be a nation. There's not going to be a nation. There's not, Unless you do the right thing, there's not going to be a nation. I, I've heard that over and 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 over. By this point, the America should have been destroyed 752,000 times. Uh, by all the things. I mean, for crying out loud, it was this country that was in a civil war killing one another at one point in our history. This is a, a country where we could talk about what happened to the Native American tribes that were here. We could talk about what happened to Japanese citizens during World War II in this country. We could talk about what happened to people who were bought and sold as slaves. We could talk about denying people civil rights. There's lots of things that's happened in this country. It's always weird. It'll be like, here's all of these horrible things. We'll be like, MTV is going to be the end of America. It'll be rock and roll and, and, and women are wearing short dresses. And it's like, I, <laughs> all those other things weren't worse than MTV or short dresses. I mean, like, really? Sometimes it's so weird. The things that were like, it's the end. And it's like, I, uh, now look, I have no problem believing at any point in any time God could bring this nation down. He could. He absolutely could. Any other nation, he could. Nations rise and nations fall. But do not speak or act as if God has made some covenant with this country and this country is treated as Israel. Israel was a nation God made a covenant with. They're in a covenant relationship and there were specific elements to that covenant and how things would work. How bad do we want him? Listen to this warning from the book of Romans. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make provision not for the flesh, to fulfill the lust thereof. Let me tell you what can happen to a church. Things can get between you and God. Leonard Ravenhill used to tell a story about a friend of his who was on fire for God. Every time Ravenhill got around this man, he was more thirsty for Christ and things of eternal worth. Do you know people like that? People that make you thirsty for God? Well, this man was like that. Every time he got around him, he wanted to talk about Jesus and winning souls. Then one day he began collecting stamps. As his collection grew, so did his enthusiasm for stamp collecting. Leonard Ravenhill said, This man called me up one day and said, Come on over and I will show you my new stamp collection of British colonials that cost me $50,000. Ravenhill said that pretty soon this man no longer wanted to talk about Jesus or the things of God, he just wanted to talk about stamps. A harmless little thing like a stamp drew that man away from God. What is it with you? What is the thing, no matter how seemingly harmless, has stolen your affection from Jesus? Why is your Bible a closed book? Why is your prayer life so stale and so infrequent? Why is your walk with God so up and down? You see, a church has influence for God in a community as long as the church members have influence with God. A church is only a reflection of its members. 
the members of a church will either draw people to God like a magnet or turn people away by their inconsistent and worldly lives. Let me share a story with you. A traveling preacher was passing through a certain city and he wanted to go by and visit a historic church that had a long reputation for doing good for the Lord. And when he got into town, he stopped at a local restaurant to grab some lunch and ask directions to that famous church. The owner of the restaurant was well familiar with that church. And when the traveling preacher went on and on about all the great things that church had done, the owner of the restaurant looked at him strangely and commented, Yes, it used to be that way some time ago. If you want directions to that church... Go up the road a piece and turn right at the next stop sign. Then go up a hill, and at the top of the hill, there will be a sign telling you the way to that church. What does the sign say, asked the traveling preacher. The man paused and with a sad look said, The sign says, Caution, children, at play. I'm sorry to say I've known churches like that, too many that once did great things for God, that God did great things through them, and now there are signs out front that say, Caution, children at play. The hour is late, friends. It's time to get serious with God. Get serious with God, and God will get serious with you. If your free time is spent on anything other than prayer and Bible study and things of eternal worth, I feel sorry for you. There is a Bema seat for believers, and there we will receive gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, and straw. So this is turning into one of those kinds of messages that I've probably preached, especially when I was young, which basically basically tells people sitting in the pew, hey, your life 24-7 should be prayer, Bible study, and church. Stop with your hobbies. Stop with your extracurricular activities. You go to work, and you should spend your time in the evening praying and studying your Bible. Get rid of your television. Get rid of your board games. Get rid of your puzzles. Get rid of your stamp collections. Get rid of your music collections. Get rid of... Go- Don't worry about vacations. Don't go hiking. Get rid of your motorcycle. Get rid of hunting and fishing and just Bible, 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 Bible. Now, I think in some ways we all... Want to romanticize it wouldn't that be great oh well no let's be honest i think a lot of church members are like yeah that's ridiculous like i think sometimes there's people from the pulpit saying this i think a lot of people in the pew they always just kind of shrug their shoulders and like whatever i'm going to go home and do what i want to do and i'm not going to do that that's a whole different subject but the issue is how can it work that way is that the way it really is supposed to work that your life is basically a monastery other than go you get to leave the monastery to go to work and then you come home and boom that's what it is Or can you live a vital, God-pleasing, God-glorifying life where you have time for Bible study and time for church and time for prayer, but you have all these other things that you do to enjoy life and enjoy the blessings that we get? Where is that balance? I don't know. I don't know. I never was able to figure out that balance. No church Christianity was never able to give me that balance because on one end, they would tell me that's the way it was supposed to be. And then I would look at them and like, you're nothing like that. Okay. But they would only tell me that I couldn't do certain things. For example, I can't go home and listen to secular music. That's bad. But I can go home on a Saturday afternoon and watch college football starting from noon till about 10 or 11 at night. That's good. On Sunday, 
Sundays after church, I can watch pro football. That's so that was good, but I couldn't go to the movie theater because that was, it was always this weird, inconsistent thing. Because what I found is all these people who talked up the big game like this still had plenty of things that they did. If you use your free time for anything other than Bible study and prayer. Okay, well, at at that point, why don't we just have church then seven days a week? Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, maybe Saturday we have church all day. And I mean, why don't we just basically make the church open 24-7? When the works of your life pass through the fire, what will remain? Will it be gold, silver, and precious stones? Will your life for Christ shine like a brilliant jewel reflecting His glory? Or will you stand there knee-deep in the ashes of a wasted life and bend over and press those ashes into His nail-pierced hand? Do you want to be playing Do you want to be found playing with the marbles of the world when Jesus appears at the rapture? If we really believe we are living in the last days, our lives don't reflect it. If we really believe that Christ was returning soon, we would not be so consumed with this world. Some of you, within the sound of my voice, may be living your last years. How do you want to spend them? Chasing a little white ball around a golf course? Now, now he's going after golf. I, 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 I really, I think sometimes this is, this really, this is not, I, I want to make sure we make, this is very theological. Because do you believe that a saved person who's covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed and all your sins have been forgiven, that you're going to stand before God and it's going to be like you're taking the ashes of your burnt up life and shoving them in the pierced hands of Jesus because you played golf. Because you had a stamp collection. Because you used your free time for things other than Bible study. Do do you really, is that really the way you think it's going to go down? You're going to stand before Jesus, even though you're covered in the blood of Jesus, covered in the imputed righteousness of Christ, all your sins are forgiven. And and God is going to be like, what did you do? You spent too much of your free time doing, playing golf and doing these other things. How dare you? That sounds like you're, that, that sounds like a judgment that has nothing to do, like, it almost as if God has forgotten that all your sins are forgiven. If those things are sin, they've been forgiven. They've been covered. They've been removed. So on one hand, we tell everyone, if you come to Jesus, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. You're covered in the in, in a robe of righteousness. And then the next minute, we're like, hey, 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 now listen. You're going to stand before Jesus and it's not going to be pleasant because you were spending your free time playing golf and you were spending your free time doing other things other than reading your Bible and praying. I, I, I think, I think we, I, I think we, we've almost rewritten the way the judgment's going to play out. Is the judgment based off how, what you did with your free time? I used to do that until God showed me what golf stood for. G-O-L-F. Golden opportunities lost forever. What occupies your time? Are we redeeming the time because the days are evil? You may think I'm morbid, but I read the obituaries every day. 
I take time to read each one and contemplate on their life and how they lived it. You can learn a lot about a person from their obituary. I often read, he was an avid golfer. He loved to ride motorcycles. He had a passion for bowling, and he was a deacon at such and such Baptist church. Seldom do I read an obituary that says about a man, he had a passion for God, and he was consumed with things of eternal worth. He lived to bring the lost in. He loved Jesus with his whole heart. No, it's usually he loved Because no one loves Jesus with their whole heart. And if you think that someone can, then that's the problem. The sinful nature is still there. So that's never going to occur. Maybe the reason you never read it is because it can't happen. We're never going to love God with our whole heart and body and soul. We may try, we may strive, but we're not. That's why we need to be saved by an imputed righteousness because that law condemns us. All right, but all right. I uh, Golf. Golf is, you know, golden opportunities lost forever. Don't be playing golf and don't be riding motorcycles and, and don't be, don't be doing anything. Don't do anything. I mean, look, according to this sermon, I've already committed some grave sin today, right? Because I started, you know, I don't know what time it was. There was a big professional wrestling event that happened in Australia that aired at four or five o'clock in the morning. And so I watched it today. And so I spent three, four hours. I watched the pre-show and then the, the event, which was three hours. I spent four hours today. So does that, does that prove, what does that prove? his antique cars, his, his bass boat, and so on. I read an obituary recently about a church member, and her friend wrote the article and said the deceased loved martinis. Like I said, you can learn a lot about a person by what consumes their time here on earth. My late mentor, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, used to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What will they write about your obituary? That you were a success in life, but a failure for God? As blood-bought, born-again believers, shouldn't we be consumed with things of eternal worth? Should, I, should our motto be, eat, drink, and be merry, and live for today, for tomorrow we die? Or should our motto be, as believers, only one life, soon will be passed, only what's done for Christ will last? And as I lay dying, how good it shall be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. But I repeat, only a heaven-sent revival will save America from ruin. For these are indeed the end times. Do you believe that? And the end is drawn closer and closer every day. We're living in the day of the spirit of Antichrist right now. Our society grows darker and darker with each new day. You better forget about your theory of relax and be raptured. I believe in the rapture of the church, but I believe the American church is going to go through the fire of persecution before Christ comes again. Persecution is on the way to America, and it's right around the corner. The chaff will be separated from the wheat. But there is hope of revival for America. The Word of God gives us a pathway to revival. It's found in Second Chronicles. Turn in your Bibles there now, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people... 
Oh my goodness, my good. Okay, so already Amos is being. I don't even know what's happening to the book of Amos. And now we're going to go to the famous Second Chronicles seven fourteen. This verse drives me absolutely insane. Um, if my people, which are called by my name, this is referring to Israel, Israel, Israel. Look at verse, uh, if we can go all, well, if you just go to verse one, second Chronicles seven, one. Now when Solomon, all right, Solomon, okay, still ruling over the United Kingdom, right? And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence upon my, my people. The people there is referring to the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel. I don't know why we have some weird concept of making America Israel. We're not Israel. Which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let me ask you a question. Does our land need healing let me ask you the next question. Are you willing to pay the price for revival and really do what this verse says and get serious with God and humble ourselves before him? Pray and seek his face in these dark days. This is just taking verses from anywhere and just applying them to the United States of America. There's no distinction. There's no hermeneutical distinction happening. Remedial judgments that are found in Amos are for Israel. And if you're going to draw a parallel, then they would be for the church. They wouldn't be for the nation. And if you're going to go to 2 Corinthians 7, it's about the church. Now, he is always applying it to the church. But th but then you're saying that if we do 2 Chronicles 7, that's a promise for a revival in America. No, this was a promise for, for God to do something for the nation of Israel. And are we willing to do the last part of this verse, which God requires from us, and that is to turn from our wicked ways? Are you willing to repent of your sins and come clean with God, not only for your sake and the sake of your family, but for the sake of our nation? For the nation is merely a reflection of its people. America used to be a God-fearing nation because the Christians used to fear God. And live holy lives toward him. We are to be salt, the Bible says. You see, salt is a preservation. We are to be a preservation from evil for this nation. To do it good for the glory of God. Listen, friends, God promises us in his word, return to me and I will return to you. Are we willing to do it with a sincere heart? The passage in Second Chronicles mentions duties on our part that we must do to gain the ear of the Almighty. I believe the average church member is willing to do the first two aspects of this text, humble themselves and pray, but very few are willing to comply with the most solemn aspect of this text, and that is repentance, turn from their wicked ways. Listen to me, God will not move one inch until we comply with his demand of repentance on our part. If we humbly seek his face in prayer and supplication 
and turn from our wicked ways, he then promises to do two big things for us, hear and heal. You see, this is a if-but proposition in Scripture. If the people of God will do such and such, then God will do such and such. There's not even an attempt to consider hermeneutical considerations about its application. It's just taken and like, this is about, like, forget Israel, forget Solomon, forget the historical context, forget the textual context, forget who it's to, just forget them. Just boom, just rip it out of context. Like, I, I don't understand this handling of scripture this way. Amos got ripped out of context. Second Chronicles ripped out of context. No context, no consideration. I know that this is the kind of preaching people love. I mean, look, 20,000 downloads for this thing. This is what people love. They love this stuff. But from a textual standpoint, from a hermeneutical standpoint, I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know what's happening here. I don't have a clue what's going on here. God says, if my people do these things, then I will hear their prayers and heal their land. You see, there was a revival in the days of King Hezekiah because he complied with the precepts of Second Chronicles 7.14. King Hezekiah gathered his religious leaders together and told them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Hezekiah was instructing them to do two things. Number one, clean the temple of its idols. And number two, clean the altar of their hearts in repentance. We see this in Second Chronicles chapter 29 in verses 15 through 16. Listen to what the people of God did in response to the king's request of getting right with God. And the text reads, And, and they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and came according to the commandment of the king, by the words of the Lord, to cleanse the house of the Lord. And the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it out abroad into the brook Kidron. This is what the people of God did. They searched the temple to find unclean idols and then brought them out, took them to the brook Kidron and burned them there. They sanctified themselves and God brought a mighty revival under King Hezekiah because he did which was right in the sight of the Lord. It's up to the church in America today to do the same, to search our sanctuaries Let's remember there was a revival under Hezekiah. That I think that ha- happens in Judah. And then, well, Judah's going to go into Babylonian captivity. Yeah, it's a, it's a ways away, but they still go into Babylonian captivity. So even whatever revival you point to, it was always short-lived. But okay, all right. Just, just the thought you would consider that. To see what idols we have set up, which displease and grieve God and take those worldly idols back out of our churches and get rid of them. Then we are to search our hearts under the bright spotlight of the Holy Spirit to see if there is anything grievous to God in our lives, and then we are to turn from it in repentance 
Then and only then will our prayers have power with God to the degree that he will indeed hear and heal. Hear our prayers and heal our land. You know, we don't hear much preaching today on the cross and the life of the believer. But if we want God to hear us and take us seriously, then we must crucify anything in our lives that is displeasing to Christ Jesus. When we get serious with God, He will get serious with us and answer our prayers and bring a Holy Ghost revival to America that will shake the gates of hell from coast to coast. This is a call to fall on our faces and seek Him in sincerity of heart. Will we do it? Will we do it? America, revival or ruin? Will we heed the warnings? God help us if we don't. And there you have it. That's called America, Revival or Ruin. Please go look it up, download it, and listen to it again and draw your own conclusions. Again, that was preached on Wednesday, July the 25th, 2012, or at least that's when it was uploaded, I guess, or the date they put there for it. So, so at, at some point, that's a long time ago, and here we are, 2024. I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't. I mean, you draw your own conclusions there. All I know is twenty over twenty thousand people. So obviously, it's popular. People love it. People think it's great because it's got that feeling like, yeah, we need to do more. Yeah, I'm going to stop watching TV and I'm going to stop playing golf and I'm, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to do this. Yeah. And, and I know it has that kind of like rally the troops kind of feel and that like, yeah, we need to be better. And I know it has like that kind of works. And I, I, I look, I've, I've heard these kind of sermons a bazillion times in my Christian life. But what concerns me is the total obliteration of any basic hermeneutical principles here. Doing things to the book of Amos and doing things to Second Chronicles that I don't even understand. Not even addressing the issue of descriptive versus prescriptive. Not even dealing with historical and, and textual context. Not even dealing with anything like that. And then drawing weird parallels that this these are words to God's people, Israel. And if you're going to draw a parallel, then to the church. In some ways, he linked it to the church, but then he kept linking it back to the country. And then almost treating America as if they're Israel and that we're under some covenant relationship with God and God's going to do the same thing to America as he did to Israel. And there's nothing that you can draw that. There's no basis for you to draw that conclusion. Well, there, there, that was our look at Amos for our sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge. Obviously, I don't know if you've done a sermon on the book of Amos, go find another one and see if you can actually get into the book of Amos. But there you go. I, I couldn't skip that one because when I'm looking up Amos and I see America, I know there's a problem. I know there's a problem. I know there's a problem. Now you can draw, sometimes you can find parallels. Here's what Israel was doing. Here's what America's doing. But is it when, when God is condemning the sins of Israel, do we take them to compare them to the sins of America or do we compare them to the sins of the church? I think that's another hermeneutical question that I'll just leave with you. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Now, that gave me 82 minutes where I was at least focusing on 
hermeneutics and not all of my situations, but it also challenged me maybe to do some more reading in the book of Amos and to just consider when when is something prescriptive and when is something descriptive. But there you go. Please look it up. America, Revival or Ruin. Please give it a download and a stream. Please do that. Even though it's already got over 20,000 and this was like all the way back in 2012, um, you know, still let them get the download and the stream. All right. There you have it. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great Saturday evening. God bless.